with nothing else than the catechism, right? We started strong, we got to end strong. So at this point, everyone fold your notes. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we'll read it together. Um, so we'll do the, uh, uh, I'll read the question, and then we'll, we'll do the response together with the answer. Um, so let's start with question 22, and then, and then we'll get started. All right, question 22. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer. Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation. Question 23. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer. Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Question 24. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer. Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Question 25. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Excellent. All right, and now just for the more simple remaining three. Church, question 65. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? Answer, I need Christ as a prophet because I do not know the will of God for salvation. Question 66. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Answer, I need Christ as a priest because my sin separates me from God. And lastly, why do you need Christ as a king? I need Christ as a king because I am weak and helpless. Excellent. So just a really good, um, simple way to help put some of these categories together as we think about the office and role of Christ as mediator. So this morning we're going to be uh, wrapping up. This is the last Sunday school before I think we do like uh, an all-hands dialogue discussion uh, next week, and then we'll move on to, to our next series for Sunday School. So we're, we've been working through Richard Belcher Jr.'s Prophet, Priest, and King, the roles of Christ in the Bible and our roles today, and then also, also pulling some material from Ben Glad's book, From Adam and Israel to the Church. So, quick recap. We looked last week at the church specifically those in union with Christ and the church's mission and what this means for individual believers. And we specifically highlighted the prophetic aspect, right? And we saw how Jesus' ascension and exaltation resulted in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, resulting in increased prophetic activity, right? Interpreting Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the sending of the spirit and we saw and we saw the implications for this right we saw the implications when we thought about the apostles and prophets right and the fulfillment of joel 2 we thought about what are the implications of this prophetic role in our union with christ as it relates to the corporate church right the church as it gathers together on sunday 
And then also implications for elders and pastors and then for individual believers. So the similar format, we're going to look and highlight the remaining two, the kingly aspect and the priestly aspect, right? Uh, or we could say that we are priests and kings in Christ. So just by way of reminder, I think Ben Glad just helpfully summarizes what should we think of when we think of prophet, priest, and king? Prophet, someone who hears God's voice, speaks on behalf of God to his people, and embodies his truth. Priest, to mediate God's holy presence, to share the gospel and see God's glory extend to all nations. And then lastly, king, to extend God's rule and reign and authority. All right, so this idea or aspect of the church as kings and priests. So what I want to do is really prove this, right? And just help us see that these realities are something that's already in the biblical text. And now it's a matter of bringing this out and then working out some of these implications, like we said. For the church as we meet corporately, when we think of church officers, specifically elders or pastors, and then we think about individual believers. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Because I want to see that this is something that the apostles pick up quickly, and it's this idea of corporate solidarity. Uh, which, which, so it's a big word, but just think of it as the different ways that Paul or the other apostles talk about our union with Christ, to be with Christ, or to be found in Christ. It's using the, the same kind of idea, but this word corporate solidarity traces all the way back into the Old Testament where we see this one for many and many being found in the one. So, sorry, Revelation uh, chapter 2. Give me a second to turn there. You guys already beat me. So, Revelation chapter 2. And the Lord Jesus is talking to the seven churches, right? And then he he presents, you know, commendations or, or criticisms in the church. But then he also provides these encouragements. What do you need to persevere, right? So we give these promises. And I want you to notice this promise in particular. So look with me at Revelation 2 and look at verse 25. And if I can have a volunteer read verses 25 to 27. Revelation 2, 25 to 27. Anna? All right, so the promise to the church is authority over the nations and to rule them with a rod of iron, right? To the one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end. But this is a quote from Psalm 2. So turn with me back now to Psalm 2. Let's see this for a second. So go with me to Psalm 2. All the way back in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 2. And can I have someone read uh, Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9? 
As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now, perfect, thank you. And um, real quick, turn with me, just look at uh, Psalm 2, 2, right? Uh, where it's, it's talking about how the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his Messiah, right? His anointed. But then when we read this, and it's, and it's the Lord, the Father, talking to the Son, that he's going to give him the nations as his inheritance, the end of the earth his possessions, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. Talking about his rulership and authority, this kingly aspect, right? But then in Revelation 2, in verse 26 and verse 27, he's referring to the church, right? So how does this work? And this is because we don't think of these things separately. We think of them together because of union with Christ. What Christ has accomplished has been on our behalf and so what christ now in his exalted position we now share in and there's implications for the church as his body and he the head right so um uh and so we see that in in, in the form of an encouragement to the church right so the church sees this this kingly aspect this royal aspect but it's done in such a way where it's this future reality, right? We've kind of talked about in previous lessons the already and the not yet, right? We're already ruling with Christ, and then there's this aspect where we're not yet ruling with Christ. So I want to show you guys, um, uh, turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 6, just kind of on this prove it theme, right? This is like little intro material. So 1 Corinthians 6. So we've looked at this not yet aspect, and um, uh, turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians 6. And um, let's, let's just read uh, verses 1 through 4. Uh, you'd be willing to read verses 1 through 4. Of, right. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? All right, excellent. So if you guys remember, Corinth was a mess, right? Um, Tons of problems, right? Strife, enmity, sexual immorality misuse of gifts, like the whole, the whole workup. And here in this example, right, we have um, uh, believers going against believers and take, taking it to court. But notice what Paul does. He takes an eschatological or future reality and says, that's already present. Not completely, but it's already present, right? You are to rule in the future as kings, right? And to judge angels and the nations. But then what does he do? He then pulls that into the reality of the church and says, and you guys should be exercising that mentality, that mindset in the matters pertaining in the church, right? So this 
eschatological, this future reality has implications for right now, that we are to rule as kings now, not on, not on seated thrones, right, in, in, in that sense, but in the sense of how we exercise wisdom and discernment and governance, right, even in the body of Christ. I really like the way that um, uh, uh, one, one commentator, uh, uh, Gordon Fee, he said, um, uh, here is a clear illustration of the already but not yet framework of Pauline theology. The future realities, which for Paul are as certain as the present itself, condition everything the church is, identity, and does in the present, mission, right? So that's super, super important. But similar to what we just did in, in, in the book of Revelation, right? That there's really this Old Testament precedent and really what the New Testament authors are doing is pulling out and explaining and interpreting the Old Testament in light of Christ living, dying, and rising forth. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. All right, so this idea that saints are going to judge the world and judge angels. So turn with me to Daniel, right? So let's head on back to the Old Testament again. All right, end of Daniel. Uh, end of Daniel. Uh, after Ezekiel, and then we get to Daniel chapter 7. And just, just to bring out um, this reality, when we look at Daniel 7, right, the first, the first part uh, is a vision regarding the four, the four beasts related to the four kingdoms, right, the four kingdoms. And, and that's like, that's, that makes up like the first half. Then in verse 9, we see the Ancient of Days, um, and, and what takes place with the Ancient of Days, this idea of thrones and judgment. And then we look in verse 13, and it talks about the Son of Man, right? And look with me in verse 13, Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there's this contrast with these worldly kingdoms, and then God will set up his king, the son of man, right? And his kingdom will have no end. That's how we get to the end of verse 14. But then something interesting happens, right? If you've, if you've read through Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 on say nothing again about the king. It just goes and starts talking about the saints. The saints will be persecuted. The saints will inherit the kingdom, right? And it almost seems odd. How do you talk about the king in one sense, right, and his rule and reign, and then you talk about the saints? And again, it goes back to this issue of corporate solidarity, Right? In our mind, we think of these people separately, right? when instead we lose these ideas of representation, right? that this king represents his people, and so what is characterized by him or what is earned by him has implications for his people. So look with me in verse 22. So Daniel 7 and verse, uh, I'm sorry, uh, look with me at, um, at verse 18. Sorry, I'm losing track here. In verse 18, 
But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Right? And we talked about this idea of um, uh, uh, solidarity, this togetherness, or this connectedness. And, and this happens, by the way, all over the Old Testament. Right? We see this with the seed promise, right? Is it this collective idea of a people? Or is it this individual idea of one seed, right? And it's, and it's not either or, it's both. Or we see it in the servant songs of Isaiah, where he talks about the servant or my servant, right? And in some sense, it's the nation Israel. But then in other cases, it is the true Israelite who is the servant, right? Who's given up, right? Like Isaiah 53. So this idea of, of, of solidarity. All right. So how is this going to trace all the way back to kingship, right? So Daniel 7, son of man, right? This idea of him as a king, kingdom. But now notice in verse 22, and this is going to tie all the way back to 1 Corinthians 6, I promise. So verse 22, or I'm sorry, verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancients of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So notice this. Do you see that connection? That judgment is given to the saints and it's connected with possessing the kingdom. But what does Paul do, right? Go back to 1 Corinthians 6. He doesn't just think of that as a future reality and someday we'll share in that as a promise. He sees that as a present reality that we need to work out in the church, right? So, so, Really, really fascinating implications. There's some other texts that I want to look at, but for time's sake, I'm just going to tell you them. And if you want to look them up, I encourage you. Look, um, if you want to write down Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, where it talks about the church as priests and kings in the past tense. Not the future tense, but the past tense. And then Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, about how Jesus redeemed um, with his blood out of every tribe, tongue, and nation to make us kings and priests. And it has this past and future tense aspects. And then also, or lastly, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9, when we see how it talks about we're a royal priesthood, but it talks about it in the present as something that the church is in comparison to Israel from Exodus 19, 6, where it says, if you keep my covenant, you will be to me a royal priesthood, right? And we see these greater realities brought out in the new covenant. Again, tons of material we could spend time in, but for time's sake, we're going we're gonna to move on. So, on your notes, number one, the service of the Levites. Remember, we'll think of this in these implications in regards to corporate worship as the church gathers church leadership, and then individual believers. So, the service of the Levites. The corporate church fulfills its priestly role as the body of Christ in several ways. The worship of the church is service to the Lord, both to its members and the world. And that word service is important. This aspect of service continues an Old Testament emphasis on the work of the priests and Levites. The ministry of the Levites at the tabernacle is called 
their service. That's in Numbers 7, 5, 7, 7, 7, 8, and 8, 22. And it uses this Hebrew word, avodah, for, uh, for, for ministry or service, which is translated in the Greek Old Testament as um, liturgia, right? We, and, and that's where it turns into the Latin word for liturgy, right? So when we think of liturgy, that's where it's coming from, this idea of service or priestly service. And, and then there's examples, um, some examples from First Chronicles uh, chapter 6, where the Levites are put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. And once the ark came to rest in Jerusalem, um, the Levites were responsible to assist Aaron in the service or ministry at the house of the Lord when God's people gathered in the temple, right? Not only in the um, helping with the showbread and grain offering and on uh, different offerings there, but also praising the Lord associated with those sacrifices and burnt offerings. We see that in First Chronicles 23. And so um, this also included the idea of keeping Passover. So, so what, what are the implications? So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, because I want, I want us to see that this not only picks up with Christ, who is our great high priest, right? But then we think of the church and the church's worship. And let us read, if someone would be willing to read verses 1 and 2 and then verse 6. Who'd be willing to read verses 1 and 2 and verse 6? Hebrews 8. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up in that man. And 8. Uh, uh, yep, and then verse 6. Yep. Yes. So we don't pick up on this immediately in English, but notice in verse 2, a minister in the holy place is talking about Christ as the high priest. It's the, uh, the Greek word liturgos, uh, which again is coming from that same root word for liturgy, right? And then look at me in verse 6 where it says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, right? And it's that same, same word, um, uh, that we get liturgy from, right? And uh, Christ, he is executing this high priestly role in this better covenant. And he is a minister or a priest in the heavenly temple, right? According to verse 2. Now, we see Hebrews ten eleven use this same form of the word for the priest who stands daily at his service for offering sacrifices. So that's, that's the first key. But then the second key is, so there's not only implications for Christ, who's high priest, but then turn with me to Acts real quick. Turn with me to the book of Acts in Acts 13. So the same word is used and we'll read um, uh, uh, verses 1 through 3. Acts 13 verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian 
a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now in verse 2, it's not as, again, noticeable in English, but it's the same word where it says worshiping the Lord is that same root word that we have for the word liturgy, right? So there's this aspect of the corporate church worshiping or in service, right, where, there, where these things are taking place. So we see this idea of Christ as high priest, but then we also see this idea of the church corporately together in this priestly aspect, right, as they worship. So I know I always have to, like, make this qualification. I generally, you know, hit the gas pretty hard. So how are we looking so far? Are there any questions? What, you know, um, how, how are we looking? Yeah, go ahead, George. Are you saying that we're all priests and Jesus? Yes, I am. And we're, yes. And we're going to go, we're, we're going to go more, more, more into that as we work into the individual believers. Yeah. Um, and uh, what I'm about to say as it relates to um, priestly ministry, so on your notes, number two, priestly ministry of elders in worship. I'm going to make a quick qualification. I grew up Roman Catholic, right? And maybe some of you maybe were Anglican or also Catholic or Orthodox. Um, and how would you address the person leading service, right? It was the priest, right? That was the priest doing the priestly roles. And uh, what I'm about to say um, regarding this priestly aspect of elders does not mean that they are these separate priests, right, similar to the Old Testament, right? So there's priestly aspects, but when Roman Catholics or others use that where you address, you know, a pastor as a priest, I think it denigrates this idea that we all have equal access to God earned to us by our high priest Jesus, right? So, um, but nevertheless... There's this other side where we want to bring out that there is a priestly aspect to the role of the ministry of elders in worship. So, on your notes with number two. The service of worship carried out by the priests and Levites in the Old Testament is now carried out by Christ in the heavenly temple and by Christians in the spiritual temple of God's new covenant people. Although Jesus is the only high priest through whom we approach God, the elders have an important priestly role in assisting the church in worshiping God. They oversee the worship service. They lead God's people in worship. They guard the spiritual temple of God by making sure that worship is God-honoring. The elders call God's people to worship and lead them in various prayers, and they also pronounce over them God's benediction similar to the priests and Levites in the Old Testament. So, that is on your notes for number two, this idea of leading in corporate worship and this priestly aspect or these correlations between priests in the Old Testament and elders in the New. Now, on your notes, number three, the priestly role of individual believers. And what I'd like to do is... Uh, turn to this text with me real quick. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 7-1. And I won't be able to make as many observations regarding this text as I would like, 
But this is one of those texts that to me um, is really helpful. When you think about how the New Testament understands the Old Testament and how it's organic or not artificial or making these weird conclusions that are not not fitting with what's in the Old Testament. To me, this is one of those texts that's super helpful in how we think about hermeneutics and, and things of that nature. So 2 Corinthians 6, and um, can I have someone read verses 14 all the way through 7-1? So, what does this have to do with Christians being priests, right? Well, look with me in, uh, in verse 16, where he says, what, has the agreement, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Well, what, what's taking place? Well, you have sexual morality taking place between believers and unbelievers, right? And this idea of um, union and marriage between a believer and an un- unbeliever. And he says, for we are the temple of the living God. Right? So, and then, and then he's going to give all these, all these quotes or citations or references from the Old Testament talking about the end time temple, right? The end time promised temple when Israel is back in the land, delivered out of Babylon, right? All these future promises. And what is he saying? He's saying, the church in Corinth, you are the end time temple that God is building. And therefore, look at me in verse one, or, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. What does, he, what does he do? Right? He doesn't talk about promises belonging to someone else. Right? With all these Old Testament texts. He says, since we, we the church in Corinth, and we as the church of Christ, since we have these promises, what should we do? What is the response of every priest right in the temple you cleanse the temple that that means for us there is repentance from defilement there is a seeking of holiness right a consecration to the lord a devotedness to the lord like he says at the end of verse one in the fear of god a complete dedication of ourselves to the lord and that's the appropriate response in light of our reality of being God's temple that he's building by the Spirit, right? We don't have time, right? Ephesians 2, we talked about that last time, right? How God is building up his temple, which is the church, his people. So, 
All right, well, let's go ahead and let's, um, let, let, uh, we'll, we'll keep going. So, um, so just a couple, couple of aspects, and I'm just going to hit on these a little more quickly because I want to I spend time on, on one or two more in particular. So individual believers also actively participate in the corporate uh, uh, aspect of the church, right? We think of in Colossians 3, right, with the singing together, but there's also this priestly aspect of all of us singing together in service, right, in service to the Lord. Or like it says in 1 Peter 2, 5, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Or in Hebrews 13, 15, offering a sacrifice of praise. So Paul will pick up on this sacrificial language belonging to priests and then give it to Christians as the appropriate response for worship, right? But it's not simply... Uh, just when we show up on Sunday, right, we got like the priestly, the priestly vestments, the priestly robes, right? And then, you know, we leave and it's like, take those off, right? We're not priests anymore. No, there's also this aspect, right? Um, so we have this formal aspect in worship. That's true when we gather. But then there's also this aspect that's true in our daily lives where the same type of word that's used for service also describes the Christian daily life. That the way that we live in worship to the Lord, when we wake up, when we go to work, and all that we do is priestly service to the Lord, right? Because we all have equal access in light of Christ's work. So what are some of the implications for this? And, um, and truly, there are, there are many, right? We think about the mission of the church and, uh, and taking the gospel uh, uh, forward. Like Paul said in uh, Romans 15, 16, that when... Uh, thinking of taking the gospel out to the outer regions to the Gentiles, he said that this was in the priestly service of the gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable to God. He's talking about evangelism and missions. So when we think of our priestly role, it's tied in with others coming to know the Lord, like we, um, uh, how, we, how we talked about how uh, this priestly aspect it deals with access and God's holy presence, right? And, it's, and the gospel and bringing the gospel to others is what brings them into God's special presence, right? Through the spirit when they, when they believe the gospel. So we see that with the mission of the church as a part of, the, the, uh, of their daily lives. But there was one that I want to spike out. Um, man, there's, there's like, there's, there's a ton. All right, there's two. I just want to real quick. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so, so one is uh, when we think about the home, right? Or we can think about this uh, when we think of the term vocation, right? It comes from the Latin word for calling. And um, so we can think of vocation and we can think of the family as vocation, right? And then we can also think of vocation in regards to our work. There is this priestly aspect between husband and wife as father and mother being priest in the home. And not only in how you raise your children, but in the same way that the priests were to teach the people, so fathers and mothers must teach their children. They must lead in worship. They must model, similar to the priests of the Old Testament. We must be active and diligent in this endeavor. But not only that, believers have vocation in regards to the work that they do, especially when we think of it more broadly speaking, as a calling that each of us have from God in that particular season of life 
that we are to use to serve the Lord and to serve people, right? Where people benefit. Now, we have to take a minute with this because it's just too good to pass up. The Reformation brought about this revitalization of this idea of calling or vocation, right? And this had massive implication for science and the arts and what people did because there was too much of a a strong dichotomy between the regular peasant who was a farmer or a blacksmith and then you had the priest, you had the monk, you had the nun, right? And that was that was a calling from God. But what you had was menial, right? And in the Reformation, one of the things that was brought back as a result of understanding the priesthood of all believers is this equal access to God. And one of the implications of that is that everything that we do is service to God in in, in God's way that he wants for us. And that means that it's expressed in how we do good to others. And what is the, one of the primary ways that God does good to others through us is in our normal calling or vocation as workers and as um, uh, in, 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 in the family. But bringing out this aspect of um, uh, workers. And in light of that recovery, this brought dignity to all aspects of work, right? And we should see our work as a part of our priestly service to God and how we can bless and serve others. Uh, If if you're interested to read more on this, I would recommend a book by, um, I think it's Gene V. I don't know if I pronounced it right. God at Work. But he talks about not only the recovery of this in the Reformation, but then talks about what are the implications when we think about vocation. All right. Take a breath. We'll go to point B. I just want to say go ahead. So Thank you for that. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we need to think that way, right? Because sometimes we can be so discouraged with work or labor, whatever facet of life you're in or season of life, and we we neglect to think of it as our service to God, right? Or like th- th- that's why Paul can say that whatever we do needs to be done unto the Lord. Right? Because all of life has this priestly aspect of service to the Lord. All right. So let's go to the kingly ministry of the church. And on point one on, on your notes, the rule of elders. So let's just ask the question. What do you think are some correlations between kingship and elders, pastors, or overseers? Right? It's all the same term. Bishop, right? All the same, referring to the same, same office. What do you think are some correlations between the king of the Old Testament and elders in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes, yep, there's definitely that correlation there. Excellent point, yep. Yes. 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 Yeah. So interesting. Um, Somewhere here in my notes, we'll eventually get there. That idea of pastor, right? We use the term all the time. But in our English, 
the idea is like completely lost, right? When you think of a pastor, what do you think of? You think of a preacher, right? Uh, or someone who's like the paid person at the church, right? Who does the church stuff. When, um... <laughs> it's all right, come on. I'm, I'm going on my own imagination here, right? This is, these are things that I think of, yeah. But... <laughs> That's right. I pulled it from Indeed.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who does church stuff <laughs> but when we think of this term pastor right it, it's this idea of shepherd poimain right pulling from the old testament idea of shepherd now here's the thing that we don't normally pick up on is the old testament and in the ancient near east that idea of shepherd is how you describe the king in the old testament or the king in the ancient Near East, right? So that's like the you know, civilizations that were near Israel during, during the Old Testament time period, right? That's how you describe a king, is as a shepherd, right? I mean, and, and I'll tell you, you go back and read Psalm 23 in light of that, right? It's like really, really, really interesting, really fascinating. So, so what does that mean, right? So then, does that mean that um, pastors are kings in the church, right? No, right? But there are kingly aspects, right? Because when we think about church authority, there's multiple levels, right? And unfortunately, for time's sake, we're not going to go into that right now, right? But just know this. There are multiple aspects when we think of churchly authority. And there's authority vested in the elders that's not invested in anyone else. And there's authority invested in the church that is not invested in the elders, right? And there's this relationship between the two that works in harmony. So there's this, this kingly aspect to elders, right? And similar to what I think Anna said in regards to, there's this protective aspect there, right? When we think of, um, when we think of uh, false teachers, we think of this um, uh, uh, oversight aspect, right? To oversee um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, yeah, and just leading, right? Making sure that the people are guarded and cared for and nurtured, right? So, so that is this kingly aspect that we see. Um, Actually, I'm just going to make a comment re real quick. Um, uh, Belcher brings out, and I think it's, it's worth pointing out here, the uh, church discipline. So church discipline, right? So that's like at, at the very end of the spectrum um, in regards to regular um, 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 discipline, uh, where the elders are the ones who oversee and lead when we think of church discipline. But it's one of those cases where it does bring out this um, this kingly aspect, right, in regards to leadership. Um, and I will say that church discipline can sound harsh, um, uh, but I think it's important for us as, as we're renewed and re reminded that it's got several goals that benefit both the church and the individual under discipline, right? We think of uh, some of these including uh, restoring the sinner and protecting the innocent, maintaining the purity of the church as the temple of God and acting as a warning to others in the church. All good things that we need to be reminded on, right? And that, you know, um, uh, we, we, th there's more to be said there, but let's go on to uh, point number two on your notes. Uh, the dominion of individual believers. And really there's two areas that I want us to focus on with the remaining, you know, couple minutes we have. I want us to think of spiritual warfare and then dominion over creation. And what I'm going to do is just hit really quick on dominion over creation. So when we think of Genesis 
chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we think of dominion. Uh, it was uh, this, this commission with, with Adam and Eve that's, that's repeated with, with Noah uh, to have dominion over all the earth, right? Subdue it, rule over it. And, and that happens by us as individual believers, right? Especially when we think of a vocation, right? So that can be in the sciences, that can be in the arts, that can be in literature, that can be in math, um, uh, business. It can be in all these areas where we are to oversee, rule, and govern it uh, according to God's wisdom. There's a lot more that I would like to say in that regards um, and how it's, uh, this also fits under our, our, the stewardship motif or the stewardship theme where we're to be stewards over God's creation. Um, not just simply environment, but when we think of uh, all aspects of implementing God's wisdom in this world. But secondly, I want to hit on spiritual warfare. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 32, it says, Why are you called a Christian? And the answer related to our kingly role is to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. Turn with me to Romans 16. And this, is, this, this will be like our concluding, our concluding thought. Romans 16. Because I want us to see, like, here's Paul applying, right? We've already seen it in a couple texts. But here Paul goes again, and he's applying and working out these Old Testament ideas with the church, and that has implications for the church. So look in Romans 16. And um, I'm just going to read verses 17 through 20. Verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now this text has references back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Do you guys have, does anyone, can anyone think of what some of those correlations are with what we're reading in verse in verse 19 and verse 20, and how it ties back to Genesis 2 or Genesis 3. God gives a promise, or he, uh, he curses man, woman, serpent, creation. Within that curse is that this blessing of this promised seed that he would crush the head of the serpent. Um, so he would be crushed under the foot of the, the promised seed. Yes. And here, he's using that same language to talk about uh, the church. Yes. Yes. Yeah, to that point. That, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, too, to pick up on Pastor Vess's point there, even in verses 17 and 18, you have that same type of thing, the Satan coming to Adam and Eve, and 
they needed to watch out for those who were going to cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine they had been taught. Yes. Right? So a word was given to them, and they needed to be mindful of that word over against the flattery and the deceptive speech of, of the serpent. Yes. And unfortunately, they didn't take heed to that. But nonetheless, that's Paul's admonition to these believers is in the same way. Like, nothing's changed, right? Yes. It's still the same mode of operation. Yes. Satan seeks to deceive the people of God. Yes. And um, now we're to follow in that pattern that set for us. Exactly. And so, so putting putting all of that together, so we see, like to what what Pastor Des said, that it is going back to Genesis three fifteen. It is um, talking about Christ the Messiah, that ultimate seed. But because of our corporate solidarity, our union with Jesus, we share in that victory. And that's why Paul addresses um, or looks at this situation, similar to what you said in regards to Genesis 2, how the serpent's doing the same tactic, right? He's coming at the church, and he's looking to bring in false teachers who are going to bring in worldly satanic wisdom to remove them away from the gospel, from God's wisdom. But look at verse 19. But what does he do? He has a confidence, right? Because they're not like Adam and Eve, Right? Because of the victory of Christ, he's confident of what they will do, which is how Adam and Eve were tempted, right? Will they pick what's good or evil? He knows the church will pick what is good, right? And avoid what is evil. Be innocent in regards to what is evil, right? Because of or in light of the victory that is shared in Christ. And he says that he will crush Satan under your feet. <laughs> so, so, so what, what, is, what does all that mean, right? So because of our union with Christ, we are kings and queens in Christ, right? And in light of that, in light of that, there is this expectation of victory, Right? that we are then to engage in spiritual warfare, not only as Christ did as king, but so we are to engage, right? And so, but also having that same confidence of what God will accomplish through us by the Spirit, right? That, and that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, right? It is promised, right? God will fulfill it. So, ah. <laughs> that's going to be it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so let, let's go ahead and um, actually, real quick, I just want to point out on your notes. <laughs> Sorry, on, on your notes, uh, Belcher provides like 15 questions that are really worth pondering when we think about this aspect of prophet, priest, and king, and what that means for us in different spheres or aspects of life. And I would encourage you just meditate over this. Just spend some time kind of working through or answering some of these questions. I found them super helpful, right? Uh, especially um, uh, dignifying regular roles that we sometimes downplay, right? So with that, let's go ahead and pray. Thank the Lord for our time. Um, Father, we worship you. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Holy Spirit, we worship you. And ask that you would help these things to settle in our mind, to encourage our hearts, to help, the, help us in our priestly and kingly aspects in Christ. 
as they are not just future realities, but present realities. We pray that you would bless us as we go into the corporate worship of the church, where we all have equal access to you because of the person and the work of our high priest, the Lord Jesus. Do this in Jesus' name. Amen.